Hello, everyone. Welcome to our fourth edition of the Resource Roadmap Show OT edition. We are welcoming all of our new and returning listeners. We're so excited you're here with us today. My name is Carissa Simon. I'm your host for this show, and I am joined by our wonderful OT content development team, Megan Wilkinson and Johnny Ryder. In this show, we're going to be discussing the resources released by Therapy Insights each month, how you can use them in your practice to make your life easier, how you can provide them to your clients. We'll also be discussing some recent articles that came out and how you can be more evidence-based in your practice. And finally, we'll be finishing up with a case study and discussing what we would do as OTs and kind of giving you some ideas of how to provide really quality interventions for that patient. So before we get started, we just want to remind everyone that this show is being offered for AOTA approved CEU credit. If you're interested in that, just go to therapyinsights.com and you can get further instructions there. Um, and because of that, we do need to verbalize our disclosures. Everyone here is being paid by Therapy Insights to be part of this course. And we are gonna be talking about resources that are provided by Therapy Insights. So now that we got all of that out of the way, let's dive right in and talk about this month's resources. So our first one, we're looking at um, a resource that's developed as an actual material to use in therapy related to the Kawa model. And this is such a wonderful model to use. I love the, the imagery of using a river as our life's journey and how we're moving through it. Um, and on the first page, it's describing all the different aspects, all the pieces of the, the Kawa model. So the water is the flow of the person's life. The river banks and the river bottom are those social and physical contexts, our environments. Um, and then the rocks are, they depict our life's obstacles and challenges, which, you know, that's really kind of our bread and butter that we're looking at in therapy. Why are we in rehab? And then the driftwood are the, the personal assets and the resources that can positively affect those circumstances. And so what I really love about what we did with this material is there's the blank page um, with a beautiful river and riverbanks running through it. And then we have rocks and, and logs that can be uh, written on and cut out. And then there's an example exercise um, that goes with it as well, because sometimes having that visual is, is really important to kind of understanding. And so on our example, we um, developed a, a, a case study, essentially someone who's had a brain injury lost, um, their daughter in the accident. And so it, it does a really good job of showing, uh, being able to write down your, uh, the positive attributes. They're educated, they're outgoing, they're willing to try new things. They've, they consider themselves to be a strong individual, but they're facing the fact that they don't have any hobbies. They feel really anxious. They have chronic pain, um, their executive dysfunction and, uh, their grief and their fear. And, um, then it has on the banks, arrows that are either moving in, which is narrowing that river, that flow of life. So the fact that they lost their daughter, they don't have a job, they have no friend support. And then there's arrows moving away from the river, things that are widening it and allowing greater flow of the, of the river, um, such as having good family support and um, a supportive rehab team. And so just does a really good job of creating that that visual image of kind of this stage of life. You're in rehab for this really traumatic experience. There's a lot of barriers, but how can then we as therapists 
help remove some of those barriers, either by widening the banks or take some of those barriers out of the river so that life can continue to flow and continue to move forward. Um, and I just think this is a really beautiful way to kind of depict um, that process, the rehab process, and then be able to, to set goals and really see where the patient's mind is um, with what their personal barriers are for their life in that moment. And for anybody listening, it is four pages. And like Megan was saying, there is a blank page at the end that has that river depiction. And there are rocks and um, driftwood that you can cut out and have your patient draw their their um, barriers or their positive attributes on there and post it on. Um, and I do just absolutely love this. It's such a great uh, thing to use to really help your patient take a look at what's actually going on in their life. It makes them think about what barriers actually are there that makes it harder for them or and what resources that they have that makes it easier. And I like that you can just sit down with them or give it to them on their own and let them work through it and just really have them maybe gain some insight into what might be affecting them outside of just a physical ailment. Similar to the actual Kawa model and how flexible it is, this handout is very flexible in the ways that we can use it as occupational therapists with clients, caregivers at the beginning of rehab or in the middle or towards the end. So I think this is a great resource. And we know that the Kawa model is very well received um, by clients. And so this is something that supports us. We don't have to fumble around, draw a picture, you know, kind of ad lib in the moment. We have this beautiful picture and an activity that goes with it. Yeah, thank you both. Let's go to our next resource. Oh, it's a, actually, we're doing an article snapshot. Sorry about that. About the Kawa model. So the dynamic use of the Kawa model, a scoping review. And Johnny, can you tell us a little bit about this article? Yeah, I'd love to. The, the Kawa model, as I mentioned, is, is one of the favorites of a lot of occupational therapy practitioners. But interestingly, if you think about the timeline for our profession, the Kawa model was only developed in the 1990s, so it's relatively young when it comes to um, our use within occupational therapy, and yet it's gained a lot of popularity because it is so effective, it is so flexible, it is so adaptive. And so we wanted to look at a scoping review to kind of see, well, in the last 30 years, how have we been using this? And so this scoping review found 10 published articles and three unpublished dissertations looking at um, how it can be used within occupational therapy practice. And a couple big things that came out of this review that some we might already realize, but it's nice to see this coming through the evidence as well. The Kawa model is culturally flexible, which is very important. It's an adaptable tool. It can be used to examine and enhance well-being. It can be used in a lot of different ways. And I think this is one of the coolest parts of this model and the handout that we just presented we can use it as a framework, right? And that's how we typically use it or learn about it in occupational therapy school. But we wanna remember that it can be used as a client-centered interview guide. It can be an assessment tool. It can be an intervention activity and it can be an outcome measure. And we see that in the evidence as well. It's most effective though, when we have some experience as occupational therapists and when we use it with other relevant tools that are necessary for this diagnosis, for this client, for this setting. So part of what they found is some practitioners who really only learned about it in school and didn't dive into the Kawa model, didn't use it as much. And it was mainly based on experience and kind of that lack of understanding on how to use it. 
So we'd encourage you if you are, are open to learning more or if you've always wanted to learn more, try this handout out, read some of the evidence, read our, our full out article snapshot. Um, they, they found that really this tool can help develop a therapeutic partnership. We think of that therapeutic rapport, that relationship between the client and the clinician. This can be used and has been used to support that. And basically in all of the studies that they reviewed, they found that the Kawa model provided a unique platform for open communication. It provided an opportunity to gain a deeper perspective of the client, but also from the client. And it has been used across practice settings and there is significant evidence in mental health settings and that recognition that it is culturally flexible. So it can really be used with all of our clients. Yeah, the thing I love, sorry, the thing I love most about this is that I think that the, the river as being a metaphor for life is just this universally understood metaphor, right? I just think Absolutely. no matter what culture or background you come from, so many people use that as the picture of moving through life. So it's, it's so functional across multiple different cultures and people. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I love that we're giving occupational therapists an easy way to use the model. Because I feel like in school, you just are kind of given it as a framework and just a big like overreaching thing that you can use. And here in this handout, we're just saying this is what you can do. It's an intervention. It's an outcome measure. And you can use this, like Johnny said, throughout your intervention to see how they're doing. And I just love that we're making it so simple, especially for people maybe who are just coming out of school and heard about it, but don't really know how to apply it to their practice. I, I hope anyone listening or watching today walks away and, and doesn't only associate the Kawa model as a framework, and they realize that there's so many ways that we can use it in clinical practice. So our next handout is the overstimulation after brain injury. It's a one-page handout. It has two pictures and then some lists of different things. Megan, can you tell us a little more about this handout? Yeah, so this one, again, I love a one-page handout, that simplicity of just here's a resource, everything you need to know is on one, one single page. Um, so this one is really intended for the individual to have as a resource with them um, to, to reference with that overstimulation that they are are experiencing overstimulation is is a really common side effect after having a brain brain injury um and it kind of talks about normalizing first of all that uh sensory overload that you can have with a brain injury which i think is an important first step is that this is a totally normal thing um for you to be experiencing now let's talk about First, we go into common triggers for overstimulation so that you can kind of be aware of those informa that information going into a certain situation or environment and prepare um, yourself before you go in if you must or avoid it if you can. Um, and so some of those look like bright or flashing lights, new environments, loud music. Um, it can even be an unpleasant taste, uh, itchy clothing, um, things that maybe didn't bother the, the client previously and now it's really it just aggravates them and that's all they can really focus on so there's a nice long list here that that goes into um different triggers for overstimulation common ones and it can be outside that list as well um but these are some pretty common ones and then the kind of second half of the page uh talks about strategies for actually coping with that overstimulation um so being able to regulate their nervous system so we've seen these in a lot of um other handouts that we have, but again, this is very directed towards that very um, specific 
stimulation with brain injury. And so taking a walk outside, removing himself from the room, practicing mindfulness, deep breathing, um, using earplugs if it's safe to kind of reduce the um, noise that you're experiencing in loud situations, um, having dimmers on your lights, taking a warm shower, using a weighted blanket, chewing on gum. So lots of, lots of good um, coping strategies. And again, when it comes to sensory overload, someone might really struggle with that auditory sensory overload and not have anything related to tactile. It can, it can be so different for different clients. And this is a really good starting point, kind of having these resources and you can walk through it and check off. Yes, this is, I feel this. I, I experience this. This is so true to me or, and draw lines to ones that aren't, aren't as, as true to them and going through the coping strategies. And maybe you practice some of those in therapy um, and see what works for them. Cause again, with coping in general, those strategies are going to be very different for different people. So having this as a way to say, this isn't helping me right now. I've tried this one. It's not working. I can go to the next one on my list. So um, a good, simple one page handout um, with lots of, lots of different strategies on it. We, you know, it's hard for us to even talk about without having a brain injury, sometimes our own sensory processing and what might be over or under stimulating. And so we have to remember for our clients, just asking that open-ended question might be too much, especially after a brain injury. And so we can use this handout to kind of help them walk through, as Megan has already said, but also in a way, give us some ideas, some categories for them. And they might then be able to say, oh yeah, and this and this and this from kind of introducing the idea. The other thing that I think is great is we can build on these strategies and basically create a sensory diet for them and help them kind of even on the back of this handout, right? Write down those things that they want to use, that they want to share with other people and whatever their level of communication or cognitive level, this can be adapted and be turned into even more of a tool that helps them with other providers, with family, as they go back to work, as they go back home you know, whatever their environmental or context is. And so I think there's just like with most of our handouts, multiple uses for this. I like too that you could hand it out maybe to staff on, if you have a brain injury unit, you could hand it out to staff and kind of give them ideas of, I'm sure most RNs will know like what might cause this, but maybe they've never really thought about it. They know it right. like intuitively because they've had people react, but just giving them such a clear handout on what can cause it, what triggers to watch out for, or also to family or friends so that people might not have to explain over and over again what is triggering to them, kind mm -hmm. of just giving them a resource to provide to their family and friends. Absolutely. Yeah, I think with with brain injury in general, one of the, the biggest things you hear in brain injury is about how it's invisible. Right. And so this is one of those aspects of brain injury that's invisible. You don't walk into a room and someone looks at you and goes, oh, that person is overstimulated by bright lights. Right. No one has any idea about that. So you have to be able to advocate and educate. And this handout can do that. Definitely. We're going to go to our next one. Which is another handout. It is two pages for those listening and has a lot of different pictures on it. And it's called Rehabilitation Settings and lists each one. And Megan, can you tell us a little more about this one? Yeah, so this one is actually meant for any discipline. So if we have listeners that are not 
OTs. Um, this one was designed to be able to be utilized by SLP, by PT, who, whoever might find it beneficial, but it really details navigating our medical system and moving through the different settings that you can be in because most of the time when you're in the hospital, um, you're going to end up at a couple of other locations as well in, in that trajectory. And so um, that can be really overwhelming. You know, I especially think about some of these really um, more complex conditions like spinal cord injury, brain injury, where they they are having potentially multiple years of therapy in and out of therapy, different settings, different therapists rotating through all of that. And how, um, especially at the start, I think this is a really good resource to have so that because you're, you're feeling that intensity of like, oh my gosh, my loved one just had, you know, a spinal cord injury. And what does this even look like? I mean, you're already overwhelmed in that situation. And just having something that you can refer to when you have time to really look through what this might look like, um, I think is an excellent, excellent resource. Uh, so it, it details six different um, settings, acute rehab, long-term acute care, inpatient rehab, skilled nursing facility, home health, and outpatient. Um, and then under each um setting there, it details kind of what the, the, um, design of that setting is like what their ultimate goal is, why you are there and why it's different from the other ones. Um, so when you're in acute care, you are there to, to immediately resolve the severe illness injury or have a, a surgery or a procedure, right? You're, you're there to just resolve that problem to the best of its ability. And then once you move on to being more stable, then you might go down these other avenues. So it kind of details, why are you in this setting right now? And then um, some of the differences and what you might see. So talking about um, being potentially hooked up to lines and tubes when you still start therapy when when you're in in the hospital versus you know an outpatient right you typically drive to a brick and mortar and and walk in and you have appointments that are set a couple times a week and so just kind of de detailing how many times a week might you see a therapist and then at the end of each paragraph it also talks about um some of the skills you may or may not be working on and again of course we know this is broad but having um kind of a general look at some of those differences. So, and again, this is how this is applicable across the different um, disciplines is it talks about self-care skills, mobility, um, modifications, but also decannulation, which is typically, you know, a more SLP thing. So um, has a nice little bullet pointed list for each, each setting of something that you might be working on. I love how this is like, I feel as OTs, we know all of these and we just assume that patients and family kind of know all the different areas they could go to. It's easy to kind of fall into that, like that you get used to it and you expect everyone else to know it. So I love that we could just hand this over to a family member and explain our reasoning, why we think, especially in acute care, why we think they need to go to one setting versus the other why one is more appropriate than the other. I feel like it is a nice um, kind of follow-up to your recommendation to a patient, especially in acute care. That's, it's a way for us to help improve that health literacy as well. I wish I had this a couple of months ago because probably like you and most of our listeners, if you're the healthcare professional in your family, you get all the healthcare questions. And I had a grandmother who unfortunately broke her hip across the country and families calling me, you know, saying, what the heck is a sniff? I've never heard of this. And <laughs> trying to navigate the world of rehabilitation and 
and realize that, okay, this is where grandma's going to be next. And this is why she's going here. But I still hear, as you mentioned, Chris, the healthcare professionals using these acronyms sometimes or talking about these settings as if everybody has this, you know, intimate knowledge of what happens in each mm -hmm. setting and, and they don't. And so this is a, a great resource that we can share. And we're going to move on to our next one. So this is a great activity. It's called Minimum Wage Activity. And for those listening, it is four pages. The first page is kind of instructions. And then there's a handout and two pages that have a bunch of cards you can cut out. So Megan, can you tell us a little more about this one? Yeah, so um, this one is working on those money management skills, but it also has a lot of that real world reasoning and problem solving, right? It's not just a, an equation that's being put in front of them. It's um, looking at what's necessary and what's not necessary, um, really breaking down what it looks like to make a wage in our country. Um, and so the cool thing about this is we have this lovely QR code on the front page that you can link up to what the minimum wage is for specific states, and that will update and change as the years go on. So, you you know, we don't have the, the rate now, but then in next year, it would be not correct anymore. So this will stay accurate um, at, with the resource as it grows. Um, and so there's a couple of different ways to use this, this activity, which is nice. I, I always think uh, as therapists, we kind of need to have multiple backups based on time or the different type of patient. And when something gets interrupted or, you know, you never kind of know what's going to come up. So being able to adjust to your time limit is a really important thing. So this has task A, B, and C. And so you can go in starting, I'm just going to do task A and leave it be as it is. And that's wonderful. You can have the goal of reaching all three tasks, but if something happens, it's okay. So it has a lot of flexibility to its use. So in task A, you've used that, that QR code, you've determined what state you want, and you can make this randomized, especially I love this activity as a group activity because it act, acts as um, having a lot of group discussion about these, these topics. And so you can have them randomly pick a state um, or you can pick the one that you're in. You have lots of different ways to use this. And then um, Assuming that you're working a typical nine to five, Monday through Friday, you have questions to answer. So how much in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year? And then um, do you think you could live off of that annual salary? Why or why not? So again, we're really looking at some of that reasoning. How do we think that, you know, you're getting that insight into the, the patient and whether they they really understand what it what it means to to live on a salary in their state or is it like outlandishly not accurate you know so getting some of that good good insight for some of those harder real world conversations um so then task b has you draw these cards um and then you have to calculate the impact that it has on your monthly salary. And so you're, you're tracking these events as you track, as you are pulling these cards. So if you're watching, you can kind of see, but I will describe that some of the cards are negative. So like a hospital stay costs you $2,750 and some of them are positives. You had a garage sale. And so you have $300 deposited back in. So you're doing <laughs> some of that actual math, which is great. We're seeing how are they doing that? Um, and then at the end, being able to look at aspects of how much money do you have, did you have left over? What was the biggest expense? What purchases were unnecessary? I think too, some of these are maybe things we don't always think about. Um, 
like for example on there we have a, a pet that has an emergency bill like we think about our 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 expenses that happen all the time our fixed expenses but then there's always those surprise ones that kind of pop up so also like how are they they responding to some of these ones that they may be like oh I didn't even think about that you know some of those those kind of questions and then in task C this is really set up for um working either in a group therapy session or the the um the therapist can also do this with them at the same time so or have pre-done the, the activities so you have something to compare with so you're comparing your salaries and which state made more and having some of those again big conversations about that how much combining them together how much would you make together what's a two-person income looking like so just really having those real world conversations about money and and um having lots of different ways to kind of do it in a fun and playful way so lo lots of options <laughs> I think, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, John. I was going to say, um, when we, we talked about functional cognition another week too, but a lot of the prominent researchers and leaders in our field related to functional cognition have come out and said, hey, if we really want to address functional cognition, we need to do it in the context of instrumental activities of daily living, things like what we're talking about right here. This is how we get down to what is that reasoning? What is that insight process for our client? But also, where do we go from here? How do we start to address functional cognition, the cognitive abilities they need to go back and live on their own and do some of these things? And so I think it's great. We talk about this a lot, but we need to actually be doing it in practice. And here's a resource to help support us as we do. Yeah, definitely. And this is just such a fun activity too. It's something that's very engaging. It's colorful. If I was a client, I would enjoy doing this. It's something that's not just the normal, find the animals or what, what, what animal is this? Can you spell it? It's more engaging, more interesting and something that you can easily pull out and do with your client and have an intervention right there. And I do All love the simplicity. QR code. <laughs> yes. I love the QR code. That's such a cool feature. All right, let's go on to our next one. So this is another article snapshot, the loss of financial management independence after brain injury survivors experiences. And Johnny, can you tell us about this article? Yeah, we wanted to look at the evidence that was related to some of the topics this week. So we had one on the Kawa model. We wanted to look at what do we know from the literature regarding this topic of financial management, money management after brain injury. And so this was a qualitative study. They explored the experiences um, in detail of six brain injury survivors and kind of looked at well, what happened after their injury, specifically with this instrumental activity of daily living regarding financial management and their independence, their perceptions, um, including the treatment. And so in general, there are three big themes that they found as they kind of looked at all the interviews and the transcripts. They found that there was this trajectory of financial management change after the injury, which we would expect, and it involved family members as really those key agents. So something for us to consider is, you know, are we involving family members in this discussion? Are we understanding the dynamic, you know, and who had responsibility pre-injury for finances and who's going to have responsibility as we work through uh, rehabilitation? They found that the current financial management situation really involved a couple different strategies. The, the biggest ones that came up, and this is from 2016, but still quite relevant, was automatic deposits, learning how to 
through that and then restricting the budgets until they were able to make sound financial decisions. There was a big struggle for control. Okay, so something we have to consider as therapists in which those survivors desired control, but they also were accepting the support for financial management. So it's kind of like this balance. And there's a conversation that we can have again with the survivor and the client and their caregiver, right? Their family, whoever's supporting them in this journey. But all the participants reported that they had a significant change in financial management independence and that someone had to take control after the injury and that it was important to them to have this gradual process of regaining control. And I appreciate that they all reported that because that's what we talk about in OT all the time, right? How do we grade activities? How do we slowly work our way up for them to regain control? So this article helps us recognize one, that financial management is a very important IADL and it is within the scope of our practice. And as we just mentioned, we should be doing this more and it's an, a way to address functional cognition. We should be targeting financial management skills in all stages, in the acute, the chronic stages, after brain injuries, because by doing so, we can promote independence, we can promote autonomy. Um, interventions should really find a balance between promoting that autonomy, but also preventing harm from you know, poor financial management. When they haven't developed enough insight, they, they don't have the cognitive abilities to reason through and make sound decisions, but there is that balance there. We could talk about with Megan's activity that she just shared, well, what are maybe some appropriate things that they can start taking control over again? What are things that maybe they're not ready for control? And so we have to be aware of their experiences, their perceptions when supporting them through this change um, and include them throughout this entire process. But I think hopefully we're, we're all comfortable using this in some form and with this research article, this snapshot article with this resource that was developed, we can even feel we can feel more comfortable and be ready to use it without any real preparation, right? We can just have that handout ready whenever a client wants to talk about this and we'll be pursuing more of this assessment intervention approaches regarding financial management. This was specific to brain injury survivors, but this could also be in other populations as well. And so we can apply some of these principles and use the handout with anyone struggling with financial management independence. It's such an important topic that we do need to make sure to address because especially as people are aging, their finances become much tighter, there's less room for error. And if they're having any kind of cognitive challenges that could be um, impacting their financial management, we really should be looking at this and trying to help them find either someone to support them or get them back to a point where they're able to do this successfully. So they're not put in a really difficult position as they get older. Well, a lot this, of it. Sorry, I was just gonna say, I think this article makes good points about that money management is not simple. When we're looking at IADLs, it, it's not just, can you add and subtract some numbers together? There's psychosocial aspects related to money management. And that's what makes it so complex. You can give someone those numerical calculations in front of them and they can do it with ease, but then you put them in the situation where someone's gifted them $200. How do they spend that money? Right. Or what this article points out, are they stressed? Are they starting to have mental health issues because they don't have control over their own finances? It's so much more complicated than what it looks like on paper. So these IDLs, that functional cog, everything you've been touching on, it is essential to our practice. And that's basically what I was going to add on to and kind of this idea that we have to remember like 
you know, empathize and recognize what it is from their experience, because some of them shared things like, you know, I'm making all this progress, but yet how demeaning can it feel when it's my money and someone else is like, oh, here, you can have $10 to do whatever you want, but I can't control my bank account, or I don't get to actually pay those bills because I'm not being trusted with my own money that I worked hard for, that I've earned. And so it's something that we can't, you know, just kind of take lightly when we're addressing this. As you mentioned, there's that psychosocial component that requires a very nuanced approach, but this is also more than just a one intervention session. This is something that needs to be ongoing. And I think it starts with understanding their perceptions of their money management before their injury, but also where it is now and really getting down to the heart of what do they want? What are they aware of? And how can we support them through this process? which is going to be a gradual process, not overnight. Not only that, I remember I had this patient who he was really struggling because as banking moved online, he had to figure out the internet. And that was just something totally foreign to him. He, it was just very, very challenging. And I think I spent like a total of five to like six, seven sessions just trying to help him navigate this, learning the new system. And in the end, he was successful. He was able to figure out online banking, but it was very challenging for someone who maybe didn't grow up with computer literacy. And and we didn't used to see as much fraud as an issue and Mm -hmm. all this theft that's happening, which we don't even understand. It used to be you were robbed in person. Now you could click on the wrong thing or accidentally put your password in in the wrong thing and your money could be taken from you. And that's hard for some of our clients who didn't grow up, as you mentioned, with online banking. And so there's some benefits to having everything digital, but there's also new challenges that, again, are we ready to address those as occupational therapists? Are we considering those things? And so hopefully, you know, if this study was updated in 2023, some of those new themes might come up of that security when I'm using my online banking and how easy it is to buy something online and spend a lot of money with one click as opposed to having to drive to the store and count out cash or write a check. So positive and and maybe some negative changes, but all things that we should be addressing as clinicians. Now we're going to go to our next handout for the month. Subacromial trauma. And this is a one-page handout. It has a picture of the anatomy of the shoulder. And then it has some, um, like it explains some things below it. Megan, can you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So again, love a one page handout. So I think that this visual at the top, it takes up about 50% of the page, um, is is really great for kind of simplifying some of, of what the below text is talking about. This handout is intended for staff, for caregivers, for family members, people who are um, working closely with um, individuals who have had hemiplegia and um, talking about how do we prevent subacromial trauma because there's a there's a lot of research that talks about how we need to be talking about this really early on um, after somebody has uh, a stroke that has hemiplegia associated with it because people who are not educated on how do we take care of that shoulder joint afterwards can inadvertently cause subacromial trauma, which um, can lead to 
more issues down the road. Um, so the first part just talks about what subacromial trauma is. Um, and then the second part is talking about prevention. And so very simple bullet points has the nice picture that shows what 90 degrees of shoulder flexion looks like. Um, and the bullet points talk about not lifting or pulling the individual by their arm. We're not pulling them up from a chair using their upper extremity. Um, we're not having them self-range above that 90 degrees um, or letting other individuals do passive movement above 90 degrees and uh, giving them reminders about cueing them to keep their elbow below the level of their shoulder when doing daily activities. So when they're washing under, under their arms or putting on a shirt, kind of trying to keep those elbows down so that we're not getting above that level and then um, avoiding using pulleys for exercise. So we're just really trying not to stress that joint, trying not to, to cause the, the, the trauma and making sure that everyone who is involved understands these guidelines. Um, this is unfortunately something that I have seen a lot in a lot of different settings um, with just caregivers who just aren't educated. It's not part of their background, but it's also their job to take care of them and make sure that, um, you know, they're engaging in their ADLs or transferring them. Um, and same with family, you know, they go to, oh, I want to, let me help you out, Johnny, you know, but then they're like yanking them up by their arms and you're just like, ah, stop. <laughs> um, and so this is a really simple uh, handout that can just be provided with like basic education, even at, at the front end after having um, a stroke. And um, I think that this hopefully can be an easy uh, lead into conversations with people that we've maybe seen doing uh, improper transfers or, or um, things that could lead to this problem. So simple, uh, but educational. I like that especially I know sometimes it's hard to approach certain caregivers that when we're providing like our um, education, sometimes it comes off as us telling them like that they're doing it wrong or, and it can become like a kind of a hostile conversation that has happened to me in the past. I, I like that you could just provide this handout and it's like really not like that you're telling them they're doing anything wrong. You're just providing them education. And hopefully that will smooth things over and um, create a less difficult conversation to have. That person. Because unfortunately, you know, this, this only takes one wrong movement sometimes for an injury. And so I think it's important that we do this early on and frequently. And this handout's written in, in lay language that any, anyone can understand. But it's one of those things that we have to keep addressing because it can set that client back. It can cause a new injury it can really be disruptive to that rehabilitation process. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to do everything we can to help them. And we don't want anything to actually hurt them as part of their recovery. Yeah, also, absolutely. I, I know a lot of places I've worked, they do in services to, to make sure that everyone is staying educated on these types of topics. And so this would be a really easy way to like, here, like for your next in-service, this is a great handout to just make sure that everyone that is getting this literature and it's being talked about with everybody. So like you pointed out, Chris, it doesn't feel like a targeting thing. Um, it's just information we want everyone to have if we're working with this population. Mm -hmm. Or you could even post it too, because the caregivers switch so frequently. It would be nice just to leave at the bedside or like you can circle it and try to make it obvious for everyone coming in that this is why we're transferring a certain way.
All right, and now is the time for our case study. So Mr. Hernandez is a 45-year-old male who was bitten by his dog at home and is now status post bilateral forearm irrigation and debridement with brachial to ulnar artery bypass with saphenous vein autograph. During his acute stay, occupational therapy was consulted to address new weakness in his hands and forearms post-surgery, along with sensory changes. Mr. Hernandez is an electrician and owns his own company. He is concerned about his ability to return to work. He has a live-in girlfriend who is able to help with ADLs and IADLs some of the time. Additionally, per the social work notes, Mr. Hernandez's dog was euthanized after the attack and Mr. Hernandez is struggling with the loss of his beloved pet. So now we're gonna talk about some resources that we picked from um, Therapy Insights from a while ago that you could use in this case. And then after that, we'll kind of talk about different interventions we would do. So I selected Scar Massage as a home program. So because it was a dog bite, you know that there's gonna be a lot of trauma and it's not going to be clean scars. It's probably a lot of, um, the incisions are gonna require a lot of stitches to sew up. And because of that, there's gonna be a lot of scarring. Not only that, but he also had to have a graft from his staff in his vein. So he's also going to have a scar on his leg. And because he, he's an electrician, he really needs that mobility in his hands and his forearms. He needs to be able to keep all those joints moving. So I thought this was a great resource um, to provide him so he can start working on it at home. It sounds like he'll be really motivated that it's important to him to get back to work. So I like how it just, um, this handout is like really clear about what a scar is and when to start the massage, how you should do it. I think it makes it very clear like what to do and it's not complicated and it has nice pictures on it. It's a one-page handout for anybody listening so that it's very simple and you can go through it with them and then they should be able to do it on their own to prevent that scar from reducing his mobility. And then John, you wanna tell us about the handout you selected? Yeah, and with this case study, there's a lot going on. So I hope all of our listeners realize there's a lot more that we would probably do as occupational therapists, but we wanted to highlight a few um, handouts or worksheets or resources that we think would be beneficial. And so I chose a sensory screening form. And so we have uh, these forms available. And, you know, we've all done this. We learned it in school. But if you haven't done a sensory screening or a very detailed one in a while, you might need a little bit of a refresher. And what's nice about this is it gives you all that detailed information. We have images here of the forearm with um, outlines for our cutaneous nerves so that then we can take that information. We could put this as part of our documentation. So it could be scanned in, um, which some places that specialize in hand therapy have a version of this that is scanned in where we can just draw right on it. It could be kept in a paper chart if you're working in a place that still has paper charts, but it could also be used to help us write our narrative. So this is kind of like our resource here. And then we're like, okay, now we can talk about what nerve are we seeing some impairment Ian. And so we could track progression, like changes, both good and bad, as uh, Mr. Hernandez is healing, as we're maybe doing some um, sensory work with him where we're trying to integrate and, and improve that. Or maybe we've got some sensitivities and we're trying to desensitize some areas. But I just think, you know, we can all use a, a little refresher sometimes with some of our anatomy. 
And so this gives us all those ideas. It also talks about testing like um, two-point discrimination, you know, how do we inspect the integument and things that we might want to document and share with the physician, and how do we do ba some basic threshold testing. And so it's kind of like a cheat sheet, if you will, but I think it could be good for us to evaluate him um, at the beginning, maybe at a reevaluation and at our discharge to provide that more detailed report to the doctor and, and show them that we, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> And then Megan, you picked Therapy for Improving Hand Strength and Coordination. Can you tell us about this handout? Yeah, so I think this one, again, has really nice pictures, really um, simple ways to, to show a, a good HEP um, for improving your hand strength. Um, I know, again, similar to Chris's thought process, very motivated. Um, he, I think, would certainly follow through with, with an HEP. And um, these are just good ways to uh, be able to do that at home. The thing I really love about Therapy, just as an OT, is it's something that they can do once they've got it down, like while they're watching TV or, you know, those types of things. So it's a really easy way to make sure that they're getting in those reps every single day. Um, and I think a lot of people find it enjoyable and relaxing, too. And so I, I usually find that with my clients, there's a pretty high um uh, use of, of an HEP with therapy. Um, so just uh, all the different aspects that we kind of hit on for addressing all the problems with his, uh, upper extremity. So, you know, looking at, at the scarring and the sensory and the strengthening and all of the concerns that he had. And, and, uh, like Johnny said, there's, there's a lot going on here that we could unpack. I feel like we could have picked a multitude of different resources, but I'm really working on that, that strength so that he can, be getting back to his occupation as an electrician. And I think we could continue on and progress this into like that work reconditioning or work readiness program as mm -hmm. we get some of that strength back, actually simulate some of the electrical work that Mr. Hernandez is going to do. And we could do that in the outpatient setting or even in the home health setting, wherever he is, we can start preparing him to go back for, you know, the actual um, activities that he's going to need to do on a daily basis. Definitely. And do you guys have any other thoughts on this case study or what you would address, how you would address it with this patient? I would say that it is very important to notice the last bullet point, which is related to him struggling with the loss of his pet. Um, you know, I think our team is pretty good at hitting on the, the mental health and why that, that's just intertwined with pretty much every patient. But honestly, this is a very clear, like we're, we're, coping with something really challenging because we're in rehab because of the, the pet, right? I mean, we went through this because of them and now I don't have them anymore, but I love them and, and a lot going on there. And so I think, um, you know, we have the opportunity a lot of times when we're doing some of these repetitive exercises or we're doing scar massage or we're doing some of these things to be having kind of some conversations alongside of that. And, and, um, checking in regularly with how are you coping? I mean, that's something that we, we've touched on before is really part of our scope. We need to make sure that he's doing okay um, with his mental health and, and coping with those types of things. And if we start to see some of those things, you know, kind of be concerning, then getting in touch with the, the right types of people, but offering, you know, that therapeutic relationship, like, you know, we we're here and we understand, and, you know, it's someone they show up and see regularly that they can have a building conversation with the, the troubles that they're having. 
I think it's important to remember that we're trauma-informed practitioners, and we should recognize that, you know, there's two parts of this that are pretty traumatic. The actual injury, right, and being attacked by a dog, then that's a dog that Mr. Hernandez loved, but there might be some post-traumatic stress disorder related to this. But then the second trauma that is very obvious here is having to euthanize his dog. And so both of those things, when Mr. Hernandez is ready, should be addressed by the occupational therapist. And there are screenings that we can use for PTSD. We can ask some open-ended questions. We can you know, approach that topic in a sensitive and trauma-informed way for when Mr. Han Hernandez is ready to talk about that. And then as Megan mentioned, provide some of those interventions that would help him process this and work through it. Um, but I think that needs to be at least assessed at some point. And depending on when we are treating him right in those early stages, it may not be time to talk about that in depth because he might not be ready, but we can offer resources. We can tell him that we can work with him when he is ready, even if he's healed physically from that, he may need a referral to come back to occupational therapy or offer and, and educate him on other psychological and counseling services available for some of that trauma that he experienced. Yeah, as you both have said, it's a very complicated case um, because of the, the dog being his and also his career being so affected by the injury. Um, it's not like he was uh, someone with a desk job that could hopefully get back to it or use dictation if needed. Like as an electrician, he really needs the function in his hands and arms. And so we would hope that he would recover fully, but you've never really know with these injuries and they're prone to infection and sensory loss can be permanent. So even addressing that part that he might need a new career choice and kind of helping him in that um, process and really finding a new path forward for him if the outcome is not what we hope. Yeah. And he might have to go into homes if he continues to be electrician where there are other animals. And so you know, maybe he's an industrial electrician working in a warehouse. But, you know, there's all those client factors that we'll never see in a, in a case study only when we're working with this individual, but it just reminds us of the, the unique benefits and responsibility of being an occupational therapist to truly gain that occupational profile and understand our client so that we are there to support them in their unique life and in their own context. Very true, great points. And now we're going to review some resources you might be interested in from our PT and speech therapy teams. So from the PT team, we have this carpal anatomy and diagnostic, diagnostic resource for clinicians. For those listening, it is a six-page document, pretty long one, that has all the different bones um, of the hand and um, kind of explains the anatomy and different things about it. So that's a great resource if you want to check it out. And the speech also from PT, we have, should I use hot or cold? So this is talking about the different reasons you would use cold therapy versus hot therapy. And it's just a one page handout, very simple and short, which is great. And also sleeping positions for people with spinal pain. So again, a one page handout, it has some different pictures um, of different positions that could cause pain and how you should position in bed if you are a back, side, or stomach sleeper. So also a wonderful resource to use for our clients. And finally, we have what is Huntington's disease? It's a two-page 
educational resource about what it is and management outcomes and how as therapists we can optimize the quality of life. And also what is, Johnny or Megan, do you know how to pronounce this first word? It's psoriatic arthritis. Psoriatic, thank you, psoriatic arthritis. And it's also a two-page handout, and it talks about what it is and how you diagnose it, how it's treated. And from the speech therapy team, we have incentives spirometer and what it is. We've all seen these in the hospital. The benefits of using and diagnostic recommendations for using. How do you use it? And it has a great chart um, with the normalized measurements. And I would love to, you can provide this to your patients so that they have a better idea of why they're getting this in the hospital and what it's for. I think this one's great. I'm going to jump in if you don't mind, because no, definitely. I can't believe that they just hand these out and they don't give patients anything because <laughs> I've seen that with my own family. And so I think this is a great resource for all of us to use with whatever profession, but it's, it's, it's wonderful that it's coming from our SLP colleagues as experts in here but it still just baffles me with how many years we've been using these and it's just handed them and it's like, oh, blow into this and they don't even know what it's for. So this is awesome. I agree. I like that the, there is a chart because they're always like, what number am I supposed to get to? <laughs> exactly. So I love that there's a chart and it has like their ages and what they should be trying to get to. And also from the speech therapy team, organizing and planning a calendar. Oh, this is a great one. It is... Um, a one-page resource, or no, actually it's three pages, and it has a calendar and different examples of how you can plan it with follow-up questions and answers. Thank you so much for joining us for episode four. We are so excited to have you listening. And any other resources we talked about during this show, you can get instant access to at therapyinsights.com. All the links are also available in the show notes if that's easier for you. If you have any questions at all, we would love to discuss them on our show. Please just reach out to support at therapyinsights.com and be sure to vote on what we create next. And our next episode will be dropping July 1st and we'll see you then. Thanks for joining. Thank Bye. you. For joining.